Welcome, everybody. You are about to hear an amazing conversation that I had with my former high school principal, Dr. Rifka Teitz-Blau. I just am adding on this little note to let you know that next week I'm going to be recording an episode on women and Pesach. So this is a huge topic. A lot of us struggle with Pesach. I happen to be one of those that love Pesach, as I mentioned in last week's podcast. Um, But I do work hard, and there's definitely times where I feel a little overwhelmed. So if you have any questions that you'd like me to address in next week's podcast, or any tips and tricks, things that you have learned over the years that have helped you make Pesach easier, please send them to me at adeeperconversation120 at gmail.com. I'd love to be able to answer your questions and also share some of the wisdom that you all have learned over the years. Thank you all so much, and enjoy the episode with Dr. Blau. Welcome, this is Yochavet, and you are listening to A Deeper Conversation, a podcast for Jewish women. Please feel free to be in touch with me at adeeperconversation120 at gmail.com, or you could follow me on Instagram at adeeperconversation. So I am here with another conversation with an extraordinary Jewish woman, and I have to admit, today's conversation is one that I am very excited about, but also, if I'm being honest, a little nervous, because I am honored to be talking to my high school principal, Dr. Rivka Teitz-Blau, who is an author and educator. And when I asked her to tell me her credentials, she said she is the wife of a Rav and a mother of three Rabbanim. So, Dr. Blau, welcome to the podcast. Yo, Kevin, thank you very much, and I am delighted to be here with you. I have wonderful memories of you from high school, and now to know what you're doing, Baruch Hashem, is just a terrific bonus. Thank you. So, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I wanted to share stories of Jewish women who I truly believe to be the strongest force on earth. And I know for myself, I'm sure for the other women who are listening, We get that from our mothers, from our teachers and educators. And for me, certainly, you were a big part of my story. So many things you said to me in high school really stuck with me to this day. I find myself thinking about them, repeating them, and hopefully we'll get into some of the things that I gained from you and that maybe you could share with my audience. So I guess maybe let's just start off from the beginning. If you can tell me a little bit about your background, um, how you grew up. I know your father was one of the foremost Rabbanim in America back in even pre-war, right? Yeah, pre-war, because he started in 1935, yes. I come from um, a rabbinic family on both sides, going all the way back. Um, And my father's family goes back hundreds of years. And my mother's family went back many years also. Uh, My grandfather, uh, Prell, my mother's father, Rabbi Elizabeth Prell, unfortunately passed away in 1933 at Arsukas. On the Shloshim, <clears throat> my father arrived in the United States with Rebellion Mayor Bloch on behalf of Tells. Oh, wow. And they did not want to meet each other because everybody said, oh, Ruff Prail was a Tellser, and here's somebody coming from Tells. Let him marry the daughter. My mother was the oldest daughter. And everything is solved. Then we have a Robin Elizabeth in New Jersey. So my mother did not feel that her marriage should be predicated on somebody <laughs> getting the job of Robin New Jersey in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And my father did not want anybody to think that he wants to meet a young woman because he, he wants to get a position in the United States. He had not come here to do that at all. He had come for tells. And then they accidentally met each other. I don't know whether it was at a banquet for tells or whether it was at a wedding, but they started talking together. And before they realized it, they were really in a very good conversation. My mother spoke a beautiful Yiddish. She had been raised in Yiddish. And um, then they realized each one, oh, this is the one that everybody else was planning for me to marry. But they decided, okay, so go marry. <laughs> but not, not because anybody told them to. And I have to tell you, that was the attitude taken throughout. Very serious matters, but always with a little touch of humor in life. 
which was a wonderful way to grow up um, with very strong minhagim. Um, everybody, Elizabeth and a lot of people in New Jersey know that because my grandfather, Prail, Ralph Prail, mm-hmm. wanted his children to know that you say Borepri Adama on a banana, since he had never seen a banana until he came to the United States. Wow. So for Karpas, he decided to use banana, so the kids should all know what the bracha is. Well, that has spread far and wide, and as soon as anybody hears that I'm from the Tights family, the first thing we want to know is, what do you use for Karpas? Do you <laughs> use bananas? Banana, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my kids and my grandchildren all know the bracha for banana is Ha'adama. <laughs> that's for sure. So that's the kind of house that I grew up in. Very much um, a Torah house. Uh, everything had a reason, and the reason was always to be found in Halacha. And um, uh, a very warm and uh, happy uh, childhood, Baruch Hashem. Uh, it was only much later that I realized what it meant when I was a child, and I heard the initials DP again and again, that that stood for displaced person, and that my parents were very active. Uh, my father even went to Europe right after the war to help people get the papers to get to Israel, get to the United States, um, and they helped many people when they came to the United States to find a place to live, to find a job, to all the all the necessities for somebody coming new after such a terrible, terrible experience they had been through. And in fact, I teased my father when I found out the full story. Uh, the Yeshiva and Elizabeth had not yet built this building, but the, he had raised the money toward the building. So he had $100,000 in the bank. In 1945, that was a lot, a lot of money to have in the bank. But each person who had to get an affidavit to come to the United States had to have an assurance in the bank of $1,000 so they would never become uh, eligible for for welfare. They they had to be financially set. So (laughs) my father appointed many, many people to be employees of Yeshiva and Elizabeth Uh so that could all have (laughs) the $1,000 a certainty that they're not going to become welfare charges. Wow. And um, he said that probably the reason that he had to found the yeshiva, besides the fact that, of course, he wanted to found the yeshiva, but that there should be that money raised for the building to bring so many people to the United States legally. Wow. And um, th- that gives you an idea of the house that I grew up in. And I, um, I'd like to just... T- yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> just... My parents had a wonderful partnership. So, for example, when my father first uh, came uh, to Elizabeth, he was just learning English. He took an English teacher at the high school, and he took a speech teacher so that he should learn English and that he should get the accent uh, right for being in America. When he wanted to give a drasha, which was always short, and I'll tell you why, he would say to my mother in Yiddish what he planned to say, my mother would write it out in English, but then she would translate, transliterate it into Hebrew letters. Because my father said, when you're first learning English, something like O-U-G-H, it can be thorough, it can be through, it can be rough. English is made up of so many languages that you don't know right away how to pronounce everything. So my mother would put it into Hebrew or Yiddish, whichever way, but the lettering, the, the script of Hebrew. Right, which is so phonetic. Yeah, yes. So that that's a partnership. That that was working together. Wow. And um, 
thank God they founded the school and uh, the school grew and now it's um, a boys high school, a girls high school, uh, two middle schools and um, an elementary school that's co-ed. And um, to think of all the people who have gone there and have now been contributing to the Jewish community, to the journal community. I, I won't name names because there are so many names mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want to leave anybody out, right. but the school has done a wonderful job. And I read about your father also when I was you know, doing some research before this podcast that he was one of the pioneers for using technology in teaching Torah. Can you tell me a little for bit sure. about that? Yes. My father's approach was that everything that Hashem gives us he gives us to use as well as we can. And we should try to find the positive in every gift that we have. In fact, it's funny because when he had the first anniversary of a year of teaching Talmud on the radio, he called it Daf Hashavua. It wasn't exactly a page of Gemara a week, but it was a good name, Daf mm-hmm. Hashavua. And uh, he taught it in Yiddish because his initial reason back in 1953 for starting it was that there were many Jews who had come from Europe and had quickly fallen by the wayside, unfortunately, for many reasons. And he felt that all those old socialists and all those people who spoke Yiddish in their youth, if they were to hear the sound of the Gemara again, it could help bring them back. So he purposely put it on station WEVD, which stood for Eugene V. Debs, the socialist leader. It was the socialist radio station. But they also were the foreign language station. In fact, their motto was WEVD, the station that speaks your language. And he started it at 9 o'clock on Mosei Shabbos, after Sukkot, and he would go until Pesach. Um, when the clock changed, it was a problem to have it at 9 o'clock, and he wanted just to be a half hour, 9 to 9.30. No sponsors, completely um, supported by the community in Elizabeth, and then other people, when they heard about it, started supporting it also. And the criticism was immediate. Who knows who's going to listen to that program? Maybe people who should be learning tomorrow will listen to that program. And my father said, who is going to turn on the radio, Mosei Shabbos at 9 o'clock, to listen to Gemara being taught in Yiddish? I really don't think you have to worry about who the audience will be. It's so interesting. I'm, yeah, s- I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I, I just find it so fascinating because, of course, we are now confronted with so many technological issues, battles, you know, new technology. Do we do we run away from it? Do we embrace it? How do we manage it? And I feel like this was really sort of the forerunner for that that struggle that we're still engaged in today. For sure. For sure. And I can tell you what my father's attitude would have been. Find a a proper Torah way to use it. In fact, it's interesting because when he had the first Malava Malka a year after Dafashua started, and there were a thousand people at that Malava Malka which told him something about what kind of audience he had. Wow. And um, th- different people sent letters of uh, congratulations, including the Sridayesh, uh, who thought it was a wonderful thing my father was doing, that there was no problem in using the radio for teaching Gemara. Um, including um, Rob Soloveitchik, including Dr. Belkin from Yeshiva University, um, including different uh, Hasidish Rebbeim, and um, what Rob Yitzchak Herzog, who was the chief rabbi in Israel, uh, wrote uh, was, 
I think I know the reason that Hashem had us create the radio was so that we could teach Gemara over wow. those waves. So in the end, with enough support from enough reputable, learned people, it finally got accepted. And Torah tapes began because of Rafa Shavuah. Because when my father um, started giving it, he would had he put it on tape, and different cities requested it. So he sent it to Montreal, Philadelphia, uh, Toronto, Los Angeles, and um, sometimes people missed a program, and they asked them if we could have another tape. Could they borrow a tape? And that's how Torah tapes got started. Wow. Not, they didn't call it Torah tapes, right? Of the course, the idea of, of of taping a shear and sending it out for other people to listen to. I think that that's where it began. Oh. I give you an idea how long ago this was. The original tapes were on a thin, I don't know whether it was aluminum or what, but that was how taping used to be done, on a thin kind of aluminum string. And the next thing was big eight-inch um, circles uh, of tape, later on cassettes, and now, of course, it's all available digitally. Digital. It's on YU Torah, and anybody who wants to listen to 36 years' worth of Yiddish Mara, it's available. It's still there. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. I, 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 just, <laughs> I just tell you how small the United States was then and how local everything was. At the end of each program, my father would say, if you have any questions, just send it to me. Rabbi P for his first name was Pinchas. Pinchas Mordechai was his name. But P Tights, Elizabeth, New Jersey. There were no zip codes yet or anything like that. But he didn't even have to say a street address. Wow. It would come straight to our house. That's how small things were then. Unbelievable. Well, if anybody yeah. wants to reach me here and ask me a question, it's an email address <laughs> or Instagram, because what we're really doing here, this conversation that you and I are having, really is an outgrowth of what your father started. So that's yeah, really special. Amazing. Use technology for the best reason. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. So, so Dr. Blau, where did you go to high school? Uh, well, first, I went to elementary school in Elizabeth in mm-hmm. sixth grade. For seventh grade, I went to public school because mm-hmm. the Yeshiva in Elizabeth didn't go past six at that mm-hmm. time. And we had private instruction, three other young women and I, um, after public school, we would go for two hours of instruction at the yeshiva. For eighth grade, I went to live with my grandmother uh, in Crown Heights. I went to Crown Heights Yeshiva. And uh, I stayed in my grandmother's house for the next four years, only going home for Shabbos. Um, and I went to Yeshiva University High School for Girls. Uh, I told my parents, of course there was no teenage rebellion. I was living with my grandmother, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> Who was going to rebel against the grandmother? Right. My grandmother and I had a wonderful, wonderful relationship, thank God. Uh, and then for college, Stern College had just begun. And um, at the, a number of the people in the Limude Kodesh department were teachers I had just had in high school. And um, going to Israel at the time, there weren't any of the programs that there are now. And um, the one program that was around, uh, Mahon Gold, was co-ed. And my parents didn't seem to send me all those all that distance um, for, from uh, going to – they had the reasons they weren't going to send me there. Mm-hmm. So what college to go to? And my mother had had a very anti-Semitic teacher back in 1932 in high school um, who had told her uh, 
this teacher had gone to Barnard, and at the time, Barnard had a very anti-Semitic president. And she said, well, the rabbi's daughter, you'll never get into Barnard. They're not going to accept somebody coming from a rabbinic home. So my mother determined that somehow she was going to get this uh, worked out somehow. Uh, she married at 18 and uh, did not get to go to college. Um, she had responsibilities immediately. But when it came time for us to go to college, my sisters and I all went to Barnard because it was right there in Manhattan. We could stay at home, live at home, and go to a very good college. And it was a women's college years, at the time, right? A women's college, right, right, yes. Years and years later, my mother came into the lobby of uh, the Yeshiva building in Elizabeth, and there was a teacher who had also been at, um, at my mother's high school, but who had been very friendly to her. And my mother talked, and she was a wonderful teacher, and the yeshiva had hired her after she retired from the public school system. And they're chatting together, and um, this teacher mentioned that she's about to go to a nursing home to see Miss X. I'm saying X because I don't want to say the name. And my mother said Miss X, and all the memories of all the anti-Semitic remarks came back to her, and of her saying that Barnard would never accept a rabbi's daughter. So my mother said, oh, please give my regards to Miss X and tell her that Bess Prail has five daughters who all graduated from Barnard. Now, we didn't know the whole background to why we had to go to Barnard. <laughs> <laughs> my mother came home that day and she called me and she said, this is the best way to handle anti-Semitism. Don't be stopped by it, but just win over it. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, a few days after Purim, it's a good time to tell you how how you deal. You win over it. You don't you don't stew about it. But look how my mother remembered how that teacher had made such nasty remarks. She was going to show her that the rabbi's daughter could go to Barnard. Was it common for women then to go to college altogether? Like the girls that you graduated with from Crown Heights from the Yeshiva High School, were they college bound? Where did where was where were people most, going? Most at, but that point, by that point, most most young women, if they could, if their parents could afford it, um, went to college. Uh, the previous generation was not so. Uh, the generation in the 1930s, uh, it was quite unusual for girls to go to college. And during the war years, everything was very chaotic. Um, but in the 1950s, I think that that was when going to college became uh, a more usual kind of thing to do. All right. And you didn't um, just go to college. You have a very advanced degree. So Yeah, I got a doctorate. Yes. But, and this will tie in with a woman's role. I got the uh, master's degree right after I finished college. It was my first year of marriage, and I did the master's degree during that time. A master's in what? But then in English, okay. English literature, 17th century English literature, because that's when they knew Hebrew. So I studied Milton and Herbert and Dunn and Ben Johnson. These were all people who knew Hebrew. And my thesis in um, the Masters was on Herbert, George Herbert, and the Psalms, uh, his use of Tehillim. And my thesis for the doctorate was Psalms in 17th century poetry, because the doctorate already has to be at least 250-page 250, 250 thesis. Wow. However, I did the courses... And then we started moving because of my husband's work. We lived in Brookline, Massachusetts. He worked at Maimonides. 
who lived in Chicago. He was at what they call the yeshiva in Chicago. They have their own pronunciation in Skokie. Then we moved to Elizabeth, where he was the principal of the whole Jewish Educational Center for seven years. And then we moved to New York, and now we've been here at Baruch Hashem for 44 years. My husband is at YU. But during the time that we were moving and I had young children, I just did not really have the doctorate in mind. And then um, in 1983, 20 years after I had finished the master's, well, 1982 actually just started, 19 years after I finished the master's, um, I got a phone call from a young woman that uh, my thesis advisor had said, if I'm not going to go ahead with studying the influence of Psalms on British literature, on English literature in the 17th century, she knows Hebrew, could she take it over? I said, wait a minute, did he say that I'm not going to do that thesis? So she said, well, I think you better call him. So I called this, uh, this advisor, Dr. Taylor, and I said, are you under the impression that I'm never going to do that thesis? He said, well, it's 16 years since you last spoke to me. So I won't go into all the details, but he got me back into the program without having to pay all the back tuition. And what I hadn't done in all those years, I did in one year, and for the time I got the doctorate. Wow. And I came to the afterward, and I said, Dr. Taylor, did you know that I was not going to let that, that, that topic get away from me? He said, of course I knew it. That's why I sent that young woman to ask you the question. So, so then you find out how an advisor could really be your friend. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So how old, so how old were you when you got your doctorate? Um, so I got in 83, so I was 42 years old. That's amazing. Yeah. And I am, I'm just so glad that I did it. And I must say that the people I made happiest with doing it were definitely my parents. <laughs> they, they, had, they had never urged me about it but they were really glad I didn't give up. And I still remember that I handed in the final copy right before Pesach in 1983. And I came home and I had forgotten that the young man who was teaching my youngest son, Laning, for his uh, coming uh, becoming a bar mitzvah uh, might be at home. So I came into the house, I opened the door, and I said, kids, this is Man Cherusenu. This is the holiday of our freedom. I've done the thesis. It's behind me. And they came into the living room, and we all started doing a little dance in the living room of Baruch Hashem. And then I realized, wait a minute. <laughs> this person who's teaching Yaakov for his bar mitzvah is here. So I looked up and I said, I'm a little embarrassed. He said, no, if I finished the doctoral thesis, I'd be dominating, dancing also. <laughs> oh, I really relate, Dr. Blau. I mean, I don't have a doctorate, but I finished my degree, like, also following my husband's uh, career path, I guess, different cities, different yeshivas. And then um, I finished my master's when I was 38. I have a, a master's in counseling. So I'm, two days a week, I work as a therapist. And the rest of the time, I get to do this talking to... Can I just congratulate you on doing that? Because <sighs> I know exactly what it took. That's terrific. And being in counseling, you couldn't choose a better profession. That's so helpful. Yeah. That's terrific. Well, I actually remember walking into class, and my, my professor looked at me, and she said, aren't you due? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm due tomorrow. It's okay. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, what a wonderful story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah. you know, one of the things that I think that's so extraordinary about Jewish women is, and I had this experience when I was doing my master's, and I would hear people say, like, 
I'm so busy. I'm taking 12 credits. And I'm thinking like, okay, I have five children and I teach part time <laughs> and I make Shabbos and Yantif and I volunteer, you know, for the mikvah right. and Jewish women just do so much. And I, yes. I feel like, like I start, you know, with my introduction, I started this off saying, you know, I really do believe Jewish women are the strongest force on earth. But when, when you and I met, obviously, was a night when I was coming into ninth grade to Shevach High School. So shout out to my right. Shevach class of 91. Um, and there were so many you things. You were in a great class. Yes. yes. I, I looked in the yearbook after we spoke. What yeah. a terrific bunch of young women. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And we all still have a WhatsApp chat. We're still in touch with each other, um, which is another wonderful thing about technology that we've sort of reconnected with the advent of WhatsApp and social media and stuff like that. Um, but there were a lot of things that I remember that you said that really stuck with me. One of them, um, and actually I started this podcast because of tefillah, because I was teaching tefillah, which I has been a lifelong struggle for me. It still is. And I remember you talking about tefillah so much when I was in high school. And I think if I remember, recall correctly, well, two things. One thing that I remember that you had spoken about multiple times was having a very meaningful musaf on, I think it was Yom Kippur, when you were at home with your kids. And it wasn't until yes. I experienced that, and I was like, this is what Dr. Blau was talking about. Yes. Isn't it amazing? When you are davening at home, because you're not going to leave your kids with a babysitter and go out for the whole day for Yom Kippur. And you put the little one into his crib, and the next one is playing with his blocks. And you're davening, and you're so aware of both those children. And in Mr. Shem, they, they should have a good year. They should have a good future. You just daven in a whole different way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and I also yeah. remember you, you said a story about, I think it was one of your sons, that I think it was a, either you had said to his rav, that he was getting to be such a good davener, and the Rav said, Oh, oh one second. I remember that story. It was Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Okay. and my son was at the yeshiva in Philadelphia, and Rav Shmuel, uh, I don't remember whether he said it to my son or whether he said it to us, whether my son told us, he said, you're davening too long. And my son was taken aback. What, what do you mean? He said, you're a teenager, you're young, you really don't have that much that you have to daven for. You shouldn't be davening for it at such length. And that was such a revelation for all of us, for my son, for my husband and me. Don't try to encourage kids to go beyond what kids should do. Everything in time. Right. And um, I hope that's the story that you remember. Yeah, yeah. No, I did. And it, it really stayed with me because yeah. one of the things also that I really took from what you had said about davening um, is just how much of a process it is and how much of a lifelong journey davening is. I still definitely struggle with it. And, you know, good days, bad days. No, but I, what I find is that sometimes a certain pasuk will strike me, a certain verse will strike me, and then I'll start following it through the davening. And it becomes more and more meaningful every time. The one that I'm right now very um, engaged with is the hurachum yechaperavon, below yashchis, it's a Pasuk from Tehillim. It's from Psalm 78, verse 38. Lamed Ches. You say it a number of times in davening every day. Um, it's in the Hodu Hashem, right after Baruch Shamar. It's in, I, I won't go into all the places it is. When you start That's, realizing that you're alert to that puzzle, <laughs> you're going to so find good. it all over the place. And I thought, it's, that really says how we come to Daven. We're counting on Hashem's mercy. 
we're counting on his Rachman. And we know we've made mistakes. You know, but I won't even tell you how many mistakes <laughs> I've made in life. Because there's not time on this podcast. <laughs> but when we think, oh my gosh, I've made so many mistakes. But this says, Hashem is nechaper alone. He understands we didn't mean to do the wrong thing. And we can try to make it right and go on. And he's not going to destroy us. He's going to really contain any any anger. He's not going to arouse all the ire that we really deserve. Start again. Just start again. Count on Hashem's kindness, Hashem's rachmim, and start again. I can't believe you just and, said I just have to tell you, Dr. Blau, every year, so what I do on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is I pick a tefillah that I feel like it's going to be my project for that year, that I'm really going to try to have kavana. So, you know, it doesn't always work out every single day, but the tefillah that I picked for this year was Yehi Chavod. And oh, my that's, goodness. That's and that's it. It's in it. It's yes. A, it's a <laughs> yes. It's amazing. Is that something? So now you know yeah. why, why I find it so meaningful. It's amazing. And, and yeah. that is all over uh, oh, that, that's terrific that you do that. That's a very smart thing to do. Yeah. And it's like one yeah. of those things that I'm Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur because I'm concentrating so much more carefully on davening during that specific time that I right. usually find inspiration in more in the davening that I see all the time without thinking about it rather than the, I mean, obviously like the special Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, <laughs> but I'm like, wow, like Elena is so beautiful. And I just kind of go past it every day. You know, it's at the end of davening. So you just kind of rush. And then because I'm concentrating like Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, then I kind of take in that tefillah and I pick yeah. one to like really, you know, and then hopefully it stays meaningful. But I, I can't believe you just said that because this is my tefillah for this year. So, um. <laughs> so now you have an additional, <laughs> yes. a, a, another additional touch. Yeah. yeah. So and I, I know that we're getting toward the end. I, I want to mention two things that, that I, I, I think are very in, in, interesting and important. Okay. One is on the whole question of a woman in career. Um, I once had occasion to ask Rafi Yashabar Salavetchik about this. And um, he said it's uh, two texts that seem to contradict each other. And he explained, on the one hand, the woman wants to go out in the world, wants to accomplish, wants to earn money, wants to make a name for herself, all kinds of reasons. On the other hand, there's a child, and a mother wants to raise her child. She wants to hear the first words. She wants to see the first steps. She just wants to give that over to someone else. So how to re- reconcile these two? So he said, um, you have to think of your life in different uh, time spans. And the whole life is not spent only one way. Don't make an announcement at the beginning, oh, I'm going to be a professional woman. I'm not staying home at all. And don't make an announcement, I'm going to stay home with my children. Don't even talk to me about leaving the house for the next 30 years. He said, what one should do is apportion things. And if you want to stay home with your children, do that. You don't owe an explanation to anyone for that. If you want to go out and work, do that. You don't owe an explanation to anybody except that you must find good care for your children. It can't be that you just leave your children in whatever hands it might be. That's the hardest part of the whole thing. And then he said it could be part-time. You could spend um, uh, a year uh, where uh, you go to work two days a week outside the house. Uh, Then the next year you could decide, no, I have a new baby. I want to stay home entirely uh, for that year. So 
And he said, now that the life expectancy for women is, thank God, um, now it's already, I think, past 80, he said, at 40, 45, there's not going to be any babies anymore. And now you can go do whatever you would like without having to worry about what are the children doing. So he said, the whole thing is to look at your life as a whole, think what's important to you. You have responsibility to your children. That's number one. But beyond that, there's so many ways you could work these things out. And he uh, agreed, and I must uh, be open about this. If you're a lawyer and you don't work between the time that you're 26 and the time that you're 46, yes, you're going to be behind in your profession when you go into law full time. And anything else that you can name, of course, is going to put one behind. But meanwhile, one has seen one's children grow up. And he pointed out to be a psychologist and uh, be in your office and think, what problems am I creating at home? Or to be a lawyer and think, I'm solving other people's legal difficulties, but what difficulties am I creating at home? That's no way. And he said to be at home and to be resenting the children, they'll feel it. That's no way either. So he said, yeah, women have to make choices, but the choices are always there. Don't feel trapped and think part-time, full-time, this year, next year. And so far, in the end, there'll be plenty of time to do everything you want to do. Well, that really resonates with me, especially, you know, as I told you, I did my degree when I was 38. So I was teaching very part-time, home with my kids, and now I have a little bit more time to devote to my career. And I certainly have lived out in the world enough to have seen so many secular people who do the opposite, where they devote their I guess, childbearing years to their career and then all of a sudden turn around at 35 and say, like, oh, what what have I done? Yeah. And now it's fertility and it's, you know, their older parents and, you know, Baruch Hashem, like there's lots of time now for career. But, you know, with regards to, um, there's just one question I wanted to ask you and then maybe I'll ask you my final question that I ask everybody, but you ran a girl's school for a long time. I'm the beneficiary of that. But with regards to girls' education, Torah, Jewish girls' education, what are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? What are the needs that you noticed when you were running a girls' school? I think the thing we're doing right across the country and across the world is that we're having more and more schools for young women. So it's really wonderful. When when I went to Yeshiva High School back between 1954 and 58, there were two high schools for girls in the whole country, and they were both in Brooklyn. That was it. Uh-huh. And then to think, Leah and Hara, of the exponential growth and how much is now available. The programs in Israel, I understand that there are now over 30 places in Israel where a young woman can go to learn. And with every combination and permutation you can think of, whatever interest the young woman has. So we're living in a very good time. I just think the biggest thing is we have to give textual knowledge and textual skills so that after they graduate from school, they can go on on their own. And if we do that, we're doing the, the biggest favor we can for them, for their knowledge, and for their families. So th- those are the things that I think we have to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we should have so much talking about, and not so much talking about, I won't even go into which topics, but there are mm-hmm. certain topics that just seem to be endlessly um, rehashed. And instead, 
let the young women find their way. If you give them good textual knowledge and good textual skills, they'll they'll come out okay. They'll they'll figure things out. That's so that's so true. And I, I like I I think I told you this when we were on the phone before before the podcast yeah. that I remember when I was going to school. So I graduated in ninety one. So the all the base Yakov schools at the time were switching over to having uniforms, and we were sort of the last holdout. And if I remember correctly, you were not interested in having us having uniforms. Certainly with SNES. I, I never did. Yeah. <laughs> I lived in 97 and there were no uniforms yet. Yeah. yeah. And used to say like I could stand by the door at the time the style was we used to wear these like long skirts with slits and it was like a a big thing. We used to try to get away with having slits in our skirts. We would pin them when we came into school and then as soon as we left school we would unpin them and yes. you never were a policeman in the hallway and used to say I could be a policeman and force you to you know, dress a certain way, but I would much rather that you learn on your own why you should dress a certain way. And I, 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 I'm sure I took advantage when I was in high school because we all knew that you were a little bit of a soft touch. So we <laughs> <laughs> somehow I have kept that reputation, but go ahead. <laughs> but I'm saying now as an adult, you know, like it, it really bears fruit because I think of that and it's certainly something that I translated when I used to talk to my daughters when they were teenagers about sneeze, right. like realizing for yourself why you want to dress a certain way, not just because this is how everybody dresses or because I'm making you or because your uniform happens to look like this. So right. I will tell you that I was raised with my, my father used to say this. If we ever said to him, well, everybody's doing it. He would ask one very important question. Who is everybody? <laughs> Right. That would stop you immediately. Yes. <laughs> from right. thinking that was the reason. I'm just going to close with one thing. Okay. I, I know the time is running out. Um, it's a Gemara in Yavamos, Dafai and Tesavadalos, but it, it appears in several places uh, that there are three signs of a Jewish person. Uh, the other way it's stated is there are three good qualities that Jewish people have. And the qualities are Rachmanim. Baishanim, Gomle Hasadim. Rachmanim, kind people. Baishanim, a little bit shy. And we don't see fame as something to aim for. And certainly the United States today is a great place to know that fame is a very double edged kind of blessing. Yes. Instead, we want to do what we're doing and we want to do that as well as we can within the parameters of where we are. We're not looking for worldwide wide recognition. So a Jewish person, Rachmanim, Baishanim, and Gomei Chafadim, and quick to do a favor, quick to do a kindness. And I I think that's the, the best way to try to live one's life, and um, the best way to try to raise one's children. And um, in Hashem, we should all see Nachas from the generations. Amen. Dr. Bilal, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was so great to just, I don't know, if I have at all been able to express my Hakar Sato for everything that you did for me as a high schooler and certainly as a Jewish wife and mother. I really owe you so much gratitude for myself and also obviously my children and now my grandchildren, Baruch Hashem. So. <laughs> <laughs> I still think of you as that beautiful teenager, Bliyad Hara, and to think that you're a great, so you're a beautiful grandmother, Baruch Hashem. Terrific. Um, you? Okay. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Blau. Okay. okay. Be well. You too. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to this amazing conversation with Dr. Blau. If you'd like to reach me, please be in touch with me via email at a deeper conversation one two zero gmail dot com or on my Instagram at a deeper conversation. 
I really would love to hear feedback from you, comments, questions, suggestions for future podcasts. Um, and I will be back to you next week with another podcast, um, either on Tefillah or maybe on Pesach. Take care. You've just listened to a podcast on the Maverick Podcasting Network. Check out more at maverickpodcasting.com.